it's that everything is thrown into a constant arrow rather than any kind of cycling or sort of feeding back. We're just kind of sampling things that, that just shoot off into the atmosphere and it's gone. Well, hello, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us here in the caves of Altamira. Uh, really glad to have you. This is our second episode. Uh, first and foremost, I wanted to thank everyone who downloaded and listened to the first episode, who helped me promote it on various social media sites, reviewed or rated it on Apple Podcasts or other various podcast forum. I really, really appreciate your help and support. Um, I hope you enjoyed the first episode. And I think we have another great one coming for you today. Certainly, we touch upon some of the same subjects that came up in the first episode, but I would say in this discussion that I have today, we do it from perhaps a different angle of approach, right? So if we think about maybe like an airplane circling around and waiting to kind of land, that perhaps we are approaching some of the same areas, but just coming in from a much different angle. So I think the conversation takes on quite a different hue and moves in new and different directions as well from the discussion we had in the first one. On that note, since there are some areas of overlap or, or similarities, uh, I just wanted to point out here that in some ways, these two episodes, I think, work as a piece and, and can be seen as a piece, although, again, it's perfectly fine to listen to them separately. But more importantly, I wanted to note that in the episodes we'll have coming out in January, we're going to be definitely staking out some new and interesting territory. The topics I have planned at the moment are a show discussing urban areas, both within the United States, but also globally. I'll have two experts on kind of urban studies to discuss urban areas and the rural-urban divide uh, in terms of politics, culture, uh, society, historically. So I think it's just going to be a really fascinating turn in our discussions. We'll still be keeping uh, the same kind of theme here in the Caves of Altamira of trying to focus on contemporary present issues, uh, both in the United States and around the world, but also trying to dig a little bit deeper into them in terms of their historical, philosophical, and ideological roots. Uh, but I, I think you, it will be a, a bit of a nice, fresh turn after these first two episodes uh, coming in January. Also, I have a show planned on discussing the politics of migration and particularly talking about immigration and migration within the context of East Asia. So this will be a nice change up where we will be changing kind of the center of attention from the first few shows focus on the United States largely, not exclusively, to one that is much more rooted and centered in understanding the politics of migration and immigration within the context of East Asia and lastly, as always, if you have the time and are able and are willing to, uh, I would always appreciate you leaving a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you're listening to. Also, I'm going to put a link to our Facebook group in the show notes. Uh, please click on that and join our group. I'm hoping in the weeks and years to come, maybe, that our Facebook group can be a venue for discussions to continue or kind of branch off from things that come up in the show. So I'm going to try to kick that off after this episode and try to open up some topics. But by all means, just join the group and post a comment or question or a discussion thread you would like to get started. 
And hopefully that Facebook group can come a nice place to kind of carry on the discussion and expand the discussion after each episode. So with those matters attended to, now I'd like to turn to our guest for today. Uh, That is the one and only James Bacho, PhD. Uh, He is currently an assistant professor at the International College of Aishao University in Taiwan. He teaches courses on filmmaking, aesthetics, and storytelling. Uh, He's currently the author of two books, and his latest release is entitled Terrence Malick's Unseen Cinema, published in 2018 with Paul Grave Macmillan. I'll drop a link to that in the show notes, so um, if you wanted to dig a little bit deeper into Professor Bacho's work, um, please take a look. Uh, I also should mention that he is currently working on a book uh, entitled Audibility, uh, which is a philosophy of hearing and listening. So that's why I thought uh, James would be such an excellent guest for the Caves of Altamira. Uh, He is also someone who is very engaged in the politics of the here and now uh, and and brings his own background in philosophy and, and the critical study of sounds and audibility to bear on these discourses and discussions, right? And so on top of that, uh, I should note that James is a longtime friend of mine and someone who, as with George, our guest from week one, I've been having discussions along these lines with for uh, ages. And it's quite nice to kind of and to pursue some of the topics we've talked about over the years, uh, as well as some issues pertaining to very current events um, over the last several years and try to put it in a more formal setting uh, here in the caves of Altamira. Uh, it's, Jim is just a fascinating intellect. Um, he's a very curious mind, always trying to push boundaries, push people in terms of how they think, why they think, what they think. And he is in many ways the ideal guest to bring on to a show that kind of has our mission. So uh, without further ado, uh, I'm going to turn over to our discussion with Professor Bacho. Okay, Jim Bacho, welcome so much to the Caves of Altamira. Thanks, Kevin. It's great to be here, man. Good to hear hear from you and be able to talk to you. Right. No, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this. Uh, I know it's the end of the term. Everyone's quite busy, so I really uh, appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to us. So I've known you for a while and uh, many years now, and my sense in seeing what you write and reading things that you've written um, in various places that I, I get a sense from you that there's like uh, something that's, uh, that's that's really not being understood in terms of what's going on and and how do we understand the tumult of the times, be it racial tensions or economic tensions or um, tensions within the Democratic Party, tensions between you know MAGA land and and everyone else. It seems like they've declared war <laughs> on everyone else who's yeah. in MAGA land. Uh, so, what is that something? How would you describe? It? My question is. You know, there's, there's this kind of difference between what, what we're capable of doing and what is, right? So I think everybody's trying to do ontology. So we've got basically a fight between ontology and ontology, um, or ontological ways of, of you know. For our, for our listeners, sure. like, ontology is just the, na- you know, what is the nature of reality? Study of what is, yeah. So, um, you know, you've got on one side saying this is the way it is, and you've got on the other side, because these sides have been manufactured, People are more complicated than that. But in terms of how we've sort of seeing them through the lens of media, you've got this side saying this is what is, you've got this side saying what what is, right? So you've you've got everybody's doing 
frigging ontology. And, and it's, it's funny to me, like I came to this realization the other day, because I've been studying some ancient uh, Christian thinking lately, like uh, first century Christianity for a paper that I'm writing, and just really fascinating stuff and how, you know, the whole idea of waiting for the one to answer the question, the Messiah, when is, you know, the whole idea of the arrival of the Messiah. Um, mm. So I think you've, what, you, what you've got is everybody is doing this kind of fact-based, even if it's wrong, this fact-based what is kind of defense. We could study this and we could see that one side is legitimately correct and the other is, is, is legitimately incorrect. Uh, my question is, what are you going to do? What's the strategy? That's always my interest because I'm not a scientist. I'm not a social scientist. I don't collect data. I can't presume what any, what any person is thinking, whether it's in San Francisco, California, or in Peoria, Illinois. I can't, I can't do that, right? So my thing is always, what does your strategy do this? And I think our strategies are failing. I agree. Yeah, that's a that's really brilliant way to put it. That always comes down to like, yes, what should be done? We are attempting to kind of create better world, a better world, or, a more joyful world. Uh, you know, and I, well, I think yeah. this in this in some ways um, for our dedicated listeners, uh, I think ties in nicely to something that talk we talked about in the first episode a few weeks back. That always you know leads me to this question, and and I wanted to kind of dig in a little bit deeper. So maybe this is a good place to do it in, in terms of thinking about how we are divided up within society in terms of labor and identity. And I've been reading a book that I cannot recommend highly enough. Uh, I'll put a link to it in, in Amazon in the show notes, so please check it out. It's called If Then uh, by Jill Lepore. Uh, and it's about uh, some of the first people using the punch card system that tried to bring data into politics. It's just, a, I mean, it's, it's, it's history done at the finest level where it's, it's telling us so much about the present, but it's about this once company, oh, I forget, it's called like Simultech or something like that. And these people in the, in the 50s were very much on the cutting edge of using these, this, these massive punch card computers to gather data about people and advise presidential elections. And it's about these elections in the 1950s and Adley Stevenson. I could go on and on. I mean, I'm only about halfway through the book. I can't recommend it highly enough. And, and it tells us so much about the present. But one, th one observation she made in, in the introduction, I believe she kind of goes through some of, some of the more important kind of findings or, or issues that come up in the book, is that how the very process of collecting this data and creating these ascriptive groups was, was not just a process of observing, but of creation. And it, it reminded me of, of a book, uh, Modernity and Its Consequences by Anthony Giddens, who, who kind of offered a similar argument where he said the sciences that have affected humanity's life you know, more than anything since the quote-unquote enlightenment has been the social sciences. In this, I, the way I always put it in my class is that like, whatever I think about the moon, as far as we know, <laughs> doesn't affect the moon. I can think whatever. I can think the moon's made of cheese. I can think the moon is a wheel of a chariot or something to use the like Apollo example of the sun. I mean, but it just doesn't matter. The moon's not going to change, but the way we think about ourselves and frame ourselves shapes the way we behave. What Lepore is, is says in this book, if then, or kind of brings up is that the process, this kind of data approach to politics and elections necessitated actually began to shape people. And, and to, to kind of put a finer point on it, if I start saying, you know what, I'm a white middle-aged man working, you know, in a blue-collar job in Kentucky, 
And so therefore I need to, you know, my identity is X. Those categories, what Lepore is kind of arguing, are the product of the process of bringing data to bear on politics that Mm. necessitates categorization. And those categorizations filter into the environment. That's the word I like, environment. It's not like someone says, oh, well, this techie or this kind of quantitative like an analyst guy says I'm X, Y, and Z, so I guess I should act this way. I mean, it's obviously the process is it goes through several layers, but our self-image of of who we are and what we should be and and so forth is is in some ways a function of the necessity of data collection for politics, for advertisement. And I mean, obviously this has been hyper-accelerated by Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and so forth, right? And going all the way back to your point, like, what do we do? And to me, this is what, what I always feel there's something missing is that at least from the left, not everyone, but it, there seems to be this idea that we just kind of keep going back to this wheelhouse that approaching the world through these categories, approaching the world through this kind of trying to segment and understand the population in that way and going down this kind of data-driven way, it, it's a classic, it, it's almost literary, right? This is, to me, the source of a lot of the problems we have, and we're looking to them to solve them. I mean, that's very human, right? We often, we often, you know, look to the things that create problems as the source of their solutions. And, and to me, that's one thing that has a, a kind of universality. If there's something that unifies left and right and MAGA and woke and whatever is it, I think in America, there's just a lot of unhappiness and, and a lot of unhappiness born not of only economic conditions, which I think is a large part of this. A lot of Americans are work very hard and are in, in very tough times economically, but, but also socially and emotionally. And, and so I think there's a lot of dissatisfaction and there's a process of responding to that dissatisfaction that is locating kind of the cause of that dissatisfaction or the, or the cause of these problems in, in, in a sense in other groups, right? And, and, it's kind of this, like, it just it's, keeps playing over and over and over again. It's not what, what should we do, but it seems that what we shouldn't do, you know, a, a very wise kind of uh, saying from, from some ancient philosophy, I, I believe this comes from China, I don't know, it could have come from anywhere, is that if you want to go east, don't go west, you know? And I mean, I think that's the, that's the best I've come up with. I'm not going to sit here and say I have any, because it, I mean, th- this stuff is massively complex and, and I, but what I do feel is that this segmenting and like understanding this world in a kind of bit by bit breakdown, this process that we've started on, I think it has value, but it has effects on us socially that are very negative to happiness, not just to like good politics or passing a good bill in the Congress, um, but to a humane society where people enjoy themselves. Yeah. I mean, what, you know, there's there's a documentary on what happened in the advertising industry. Uh, I think it was in the um, it's either post World War II, sometime around there, where um, they really sort of uh, weaponized uh, Freud's concepts of the unconscious and then and then turned them into, you know, methods of of manipulating um, advertisers. It's it's this four part documentary series. I can't remember the name of it, but it's amazing. The thing that I wanted to sort of vamp on is what you said about. Um, if you want to go east, don't go west. So to me, if we want to talk about like, if we want to get down to some ways of dealing with some of these problems, first of all, for me, it's about the strategies we're employing more than it is about ontology, more than it is about what something is. 
I think we need, to, we need to deal with what our strategies are politically. And it has to be very different from the rhetorical, dialectical, um, sort of uh, this kind of very puritanical, almost religious atheism that's going on in trying to convince people to come over to this enlightenment idea. I think it's got to be something other than that. Okay. Um, so, as much as we can figure that out um, and work on that, I think is a good thing. Uh, I think education has a lot to do with it. I think a loss of the humanities in education departments. I think what's happening in education right now really scares me because you see a lot of universities turning toward technology and AI and data, and you're just turning people into frigging lab rats and machine operators in a way that's going to replace much of what they do, what human beings do. I think young people know this. And I think that's a lot of the cynicism that you find in young people today. So I think at the education level, that would be one way of doing it. But another thing that, I, that I'm sort of getting around to is this idea of, if you want to get there, don't go this way. If I was to ever write a book on politics, I already know what the title would be. It, <laughs> it's, I'd call it the ethics of non-participation. <laughs> so to me, an ethical, it's an ethical choice to not consume oneself with the everyday discourse that's going on that is just making people anxious. It's leading to people um, turning to prescription medicine and stuff like that. And it's really just not making people happy. Instagram isn't making people happy. Facebook isn't making people happy. It's producing a sense of narcissism and anxiety. And I try hard. I, you know, I do my leaves of Facebook. I get off every once in a while just to practice what I preach. But I think this extends to things like how we consume, how we travel, how we um, talk, the words we use, the strategies we use in talking to people. I think we should call into question the idea of voting, honestly. We should call into question the idea of contributing money to keeping this going. To me, an ethics of non-participation is draining the lifeblood from the corporatism that dominates. Because to me, there is no left and right. There is one power, and it's sort of assembled into this Democratic Party, and it's assembled into this Republican Party. And those who are the elites are doing just fine with us screaming at each other and dealing with this on this level. The one power is going to go on. And, you know, there's a lot more, I think, you know, I get a lot of flack for this, but I'm saying, oh, you're making a false equivalency. I'm not making a false equivalency. I'm saying that, <laughs> that there's one power, you know, and it's manifest in these two different ways. And, and we're just fighting the fight, sort of like soldiers, you know, for, for other people's wars that they gain from. Right. Well, on some level, I, 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 I am very sympathetic to a lot of the perspective you, you articulated there. And, and I like the idea of the cult of nowness. And to me, it, I'm fortunate enough to have lived a, a large portion um, at this point, an ever smaller portion, I guess, of my life outside of this kind of hyper nowness. And, and, you know, I used to have a rotary phone, right? I mean, that's so. But it's not, just, it's not just nostalgia and it's not just nihilism. Wouldn't it be nice if we could compose a different now? Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, and to me, though, it, it's kind of in some ways, 
uh, and this is getting into this idea of, to me, what I, I see is a, a kind of dissatisfaction. And, and I, th- I would get, I'm not a, as knowledgeable about these other countries, but I, I do, I'm from the United States, I follow politics, I, I study Korea. And, and so in the two societies I do know a, a good amount about, there is this kind of just a, a listlessness, right? And, and it does lead to a kind of emptiness. I guess that's the word. And in some ways, a hollowness that has to be filled in by something because as human beings, we, our searchers for meaning. And that's where I can, I think, especially a lot of the earlier writings of Marx come into this, right? Because he really digs into like how much work is not, I mean, work is functional, work is instrumental, but work for Marx, he, he really gets into like how intrinsic it is to us as human beings, how much we derive our humanity from our work. And if that work is debased or in some ways debasing, it, it is very hard for us to feel whole as a human being. And if I, to me, like the metaphor that captures the time, and, and sometimes they're just so upsetting or disturbing that I, I almost don't like to read even about these jobs in Amazon warehouses, right? Like people on robots, like being oh, God. Yeah. seconds in. And I know, and the, the irony is that those conditions are probably relatively good to what people experience in, in well, but that's part of the ideology, isn't it? That's part of the, the mechanisms of right. power. Right. No, just I wanted to acknowledge that. I'm not, I, I realize there's, there's much more dehumanizing and, and despicable conditions people are forced to work in. But even that said, you know, people work in these Amazon warehouses and, and quite frankly, God bless the people who have like been on the forefront of pushing back against that. They haven't, right. you know, because this is... Uh, something that whether you know whether someone like someone could sit at home and watch Fox News and 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 be mogged out to the fullest and go work at an Amazon warehouse or someone could be watching I don't know MSNBC or or the, the Young Turks let's say and go to work in an Amazon warehouse and they're both going to feel uh, because of the conditions there because of how they're treated because how their work is digitized and and monitored they're both going to feel pretty shitty often about that yeah. maybe some people work at Amazon. Maybe some people work at Amazon and like it, but so I don't want, I, I, I be, I want to be careful, but what I've read in a lot of these warehouses, the conditions are, are awful. There's huge amounts of turnover and, you know, MAGA, MAGA man or woman or young Turks man or woman are going to go in there and they're going to feel pretty shitty about it. That's kind of. Well, this is, so this is one of the things, you know, I listened to your first uh, podcast and it was great. And, and what you and George were talking about was this idea of, you know, the guy holding the door for the other person. And, um, you know, who would be screaming at each other on Facebook or on an MSNBC show, right? Um, things are very public and when you have to defend your knowledge stream. The point I'm getting at is I think that there's a lot that we share if we recognize this one power, right? Rather than um, these two powers that we're supposed to defend on social media politically. If we see that there's this one power and we actually try to organize, you know, and, and try to do things in a different way. Seriously, the problem is that we're, we're pitted against each other and we're seeing what identity does. This identity is brilliant for power. What a great way of, of keeping power, you know, in, in control. The identities fractures people. And this is, this, is, this, is, this is what we're seeing. This is what we're seeing played out. When it just comes to mind, and, you know, maybe this is a provocative, it's Caves of Altamira, let's get provocative. But as you're talking, what comes to mind, and I think I had thought this at some time before, is that. It should be considered, and I'm not saying you can extrapolate everything from this, but that a part of controlling prisoners uh, in the U.S., a tried and true way of controlling prisoners is not only to allow, but in some ways encourage them to divide themselves by uh, racial identity, 
or ethnic identity. And that, and that prison guards will tell you that's fundamental to how they control the place because there's a lot more prisoners than guards, right? And that, that having these racialized or, or uh, ethnic groups, and, and as I said, in a lot of ways, it's encouraged. Like I've seen prisoners interviewed and say, yeah, like the guards tell you, you better side up. You're not a racist. Well, you better get with the Aryan Brotherhood. You know, because that's that's how you survive in here. And you don't like that group. Well, you, that's your that's your group. You better get in it. It is interesting that 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 method of like a kind of hyper focus on these kinds of especially obviously very visual racialized visions of identity is a mechanism for controlling prison. Yeah, that's interesting. That's really Foucauldian too. That I mean, just the idea that it's you know you've got this sort of I don't want to say a microcosm, but this example of of of, of some of the tensions played out. I mean. You take these in different realms, you take these in, in all kinds of different realms, and you're going to see kind of similar kind of things. Divide people so that they, you know, are fighting amongst themselves rather than, rather than achieving liberation. Right. And, and I think, though, this is where, again, I, I'm in the, if you want to go east, don't go west, I, as far as I can make it. And, of course, this is something that there's not going to be one master idea um, to, to get around this. But no. how... How can we decouple? And in some ways, this marks, he gets laughed at. And obviously, he was a bit under theorized and under explained, like his kind of utopian vision. But I think he saw the core problem. And that core problem is how do we handle kind of some of the more difficult and, and hard work and, while also allowing everyone to participate as fully human and fully dignified? Right. I mean, that and, and we can, again, criticize and I would criticize Marx's kind of formula of like the state. And obviously that went well awry. But I think the problematic that he identified is we need we, the royal we, like all of us need people to do jobs that are difficult, jobs that are dangerous, jobs that are, are very can be in some ways monotonous. And I'm not even saying that those jobs themselves cannot be sources of, of worth and dignity. I, I think they absolutely can be. I've done jobs like that. I was a, a waiter for many years, and, and that was a job that I felt very fulfilling, and, and I quite enjoyed it, liked doing it, and learned a lot from that. So th there's obviously a lot more difficult jobs than that, so I'm not trying to hold that out as like the, <laughs> the hardest. I mean, harvesting crops and, and so forth is much more difficult. So how do we decouple one's role in producing society because that's what we're all doing we're all producing society whether we're teachers or or working in stores or driving trucks and all of these things we're all producing society and the mechanism we've developed for deciding someone's contribution to producing society is x based on you know this model ergo you get paid this and you get respected this like that weighs on people. I, I think there's a lot of people who would be happy to do whatever, a lot of different kinds of jobs, but it's the fact that we have baked in so much, not just income, which is central. I mean, I don't want to underplay that, but also social standing, like to use the term social capital, quote, unquote, right? Respect, right? Respected by others. And, and I think that leads people to feel angry. I mean, and that's and that is something that again, whether you're being mistreated in your on the on the left, center, or right, or what have you, is is a is a very human thing to have a revulsion to being kind of not respected as a full person. And I mean, hence the term "Black Lives Matter." Black Americans are not being treated as fully human. Right. It's been part and parcel to the American story. That's a a, a particularly pernicious variant of that. 
But we can see that in a whole host of things of how people are treated on their jobs. Um, and, and not to jump all around, but I mean, certainly it's a major issue in Korean society that touches on a lot of things that I study and, and research. So this is, this is something, and I don't know. I mean, I don't know how we do that. And I don't have a good answer, but I think that's the, the issue that we've found. And, and the problem, and this is something Thomas Piketty points out in, in his book, Capital in the 21st Century, is there's another problem. There's a kind of problem where the very people who are endorsing the kind of system of like, you get based on what you produced and what you, what you produce is easily measurable. And Piketty's like, first of all, that's a bunch of bullshit, um, to paraphrase. We, we don't know as economists. I mean, he's a, a very highly trained, technically astute economist. He's like, we have no idea to really measure in most fields how productive someone is. So, and even if assuming we could, is that a good way to decide someone's worth or value? I agree with you. I, 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 but I think also we need to, um, you know, we're often sort of looking at Marx to sort of guide the way. I, I think we need to de-emphasize the whole idea of production, mm. uh, uh, that we are producers. And this is, I've been reading this guy, I don't know if you know him, but he's a German-Korean writer named uh, Byung-Chul Han. He's brilliant and very, uh, I don't agree with him and everything, but he's sort of fusing together the neoliberal, the problems of the neoliberal regime and techno-capitalism and the problems of work um, and the problems of narcissism and the problems of prescription medicines and sort of diagnoses of these, of these um, sort of anxiety disorders and depression that people are having. He's doing a in really interesting fusion, but his sort of solution is, is an ethics of lingering. So it's the idea that we need to de-emphasize this, this importance that we place on work and productivity. So it's not a matter of sort of, um, you know, redistributing the idea of labor from here to here, but that the whole question of labor has to, has to be called into question. And what we need to do is we really need to slow down. He's, he's speaking out against accelerationism, but not opposed to accelerationism. He's, his thing is, how are we filling our time, this, this time that we have? Um, how are we filling our time? And we really need to reevaluate that. How, what, is, what is it that is consuming our time these days? Um, I know. I, I, I don't, what am I doing with my time? Jesus. What's that? I, said, I, I know. No, I really, I'm, I'm not even joking. I'm like, sometimes I'm like, what am I doing? I'm like, I look at yeah. I stop myself. I'm like, what in God's name am I doing? <laughs> Well, we've also, I mean, think about it. We've lost the power of labor, right? When was the last time you ever you heard the, the Democratic Party talk about labor and, and unions? I mean, we don't have that anymore. Right. That's actually a really good point. Um, where is labor and the working class? Or, you know, even more, we could say what, what I've noticed has really fallen out of the political discourse in a way that is even different from the 80s or perhaps even into the early 1990s is, is the poor. I mean, if you watched politics uh, in the United States and you were an alien or someone who just wasn't familiar at all, I mean, the hyper kind of focus on the middle class, which uh, is not unimportant and people in middle class have needs and, and are increasingly struggling just to get by. So that's not said out of a lack of empathy, but um, obviously there's huge amounts of Americans in poverty and because of their lack of economic power and, and other issues, social power, uh, You've seen them. There's, they don't really have a steadfast voice within kind of the American political system. But I, I wanted to kind of 
jump back to some of the comments about labor and you know where does Marx fit into all of this? And you know he's a obviously a complicated figure, and, and a lot of what I've been trying to emphasize is the notion that Marx really, and especially in his earlier writing, kind of the, that, and I think it's it's in some ways connected to what you were saying that labor is much more than production, right? That labor for Marx, and, and particularly in his early writing, it's really just an is part of the essence of our humanity. It 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 has a much more humanitarian flavor in that it focuses on labor as a process of creation rather than production, right? That labor can is is a process of creating um, as much as it is producing. And I think for Marx, that's where he, in his more technical work where he writes about alienation, you can see that root of seeing that the kind of work that capitalism kind of engenders is uh, much more productive. And, and in some ways, as Adam Smith, um, Marx was a, you know, a, a significant reader and, and student of Adam Smith's work, uh, struggled with kind of the ethical dilemmas raised by kind of the mode of work um, in capitalism in that it is significantly more productive in terms of making things, producing food, producing goods, producing services um, than previous economic systems. I mean, this is obviously also coming in conjunction with the expansion in technological capacity. It is also carries with it a certain rote nature that both Adam Smith and Marx found potentially dehumanizing. And I think if I could put a finer point on it, I think Adam Smith ultimately saw this as a kind of bargain worth making, whereas Marx saw this as a ultimately unsustainable bargain that perhaps we can reap the benefits of this increased productivity, but ultimately the disassociation of kind of creativity from work uh, and, and a kind of rote product productivity-centered work was going to be unsustainable and that's where you know marx and that's more of the marx of capital right that that this is in a and is going to yield a kind of revolutionary force which by and large didn't really come into being and you know we can talk about different ways of of thinking about that but i think that core aspect we can see in the united states today and and that's one thing that's interesting is that to the extent that you have perhaps these kind of phony populist i don't know i don't know if you're familiar with people like josh holly um or whatever that you know kind of right-wing populists and they talk of, or or the or even anyone talking about the disaffected nature of mill towns in ohio or wisconsin and so forth or east western pennsylvania and, and what have you and how this is kind of alienating and and making people feel a lack of social power somewhat ironically because they're also Abandoning about this, like the evils of socialism. I mean, that is a kind of Marxist framework, right? That that the system has abandoned you. That capitalism has left these towns to kind of rot, huge amounts of social decay and poverty and drug use and and so forth. Um, in some ways, they're in their own bizarre kind of formulation are conjuring this kind of Marxist language of of alienation, which I I find in its own way um, kind of fascinating. So, I think what you were talking about with Byung-Chul Han, I do agree that the, the speed and the acceleration is part of this process, but at its core is this need to wed you know, social worth to 
where one fits into this kind of productive map, um, be it in terms of services or selling things or, or what have you. And I think that is a process that leads to a great amount of social dislocation, feelings of kind of helplessness that uh, engenders and in multiple amounts of permutations that perhaps we are witnessing now. Some of them I'm more favorable in terms of thinking than others, but uh, I can see a similar route. So the branches, I, I have certain branches that I certainly am much more partial to. I recognize that they often are coming from perhaps like the same roots, even if they're, they're going in different ways. And one, one last thing to kind of round this out. So I know I've been terrible with this uh, during this episode, but I do want to trot out one more name, uh, one more kind of early prophet of modernity, and that would be Jean-Jacques Rousseau. And, and I think that's something I'm hoping to bring into the conversation with this show, because I recently uh, reread uh, The Discourse on Inequality, and it was just astounding to me how poignant it was to our times in talking about how the society emerging from capitalism was creating this kind of what he used the term amour propre, right? This, this French term of kind of this, this self-love, this self-regard, and how it kind of accentuates this self-regard and this desire for social standing and ranking and these petty social competitiveness. And for Rousseau, he had this really interesting point. And he's writing this hundreds of years ago that, look, what this is going to lead to is people are going to be in this kind of struggle for social standing. And when in the absence of kind of the old noble nobility and the kind of old order where you were ranked in some ways according to your birth, people are going to need some mechanism and they're going to turn to money because it's easily measurable. And that is a horrible way, um, at least according to Rousseau, and I, I tend to agree, to adjudicate one's position within the social web. But Rousseau says this is this is the ethos. The ethos is about kind of some technical measurement. And since we've gotten rid of these old ways of measurement, which he wasn't defending, we're going to need a new one. And he's, see, he's looking at this hundreds of years ago and he's saying, what's going to be that measurement? It's money, because that's something we can see. That's something we can grasp or something we can use as a kind of metric. And I, that, that really stuck with me that he could see this hundreds of years ago. And here we are in 2020. And these are things we're still grappling with, billionaires and, and probably will have trillionaires by the end of my lifetime. I don't know. So, uh, and I think that is something that is creating a great deal of, of disquietude and feelings of lack in the body politic, not just in the United States, but in many places in the world. And we're seeing all kinds of permutations from that. So that would be kind of Okay. Not a rejoinder, but maybe something adding on to what you were saying. Well, I think what, one of the things that's interesting that you're hitting on is this idea of, um, well, Marx is uh, homo faber, right? Um, you know, man the maker, right? So, this idea of making is a really important thing to consider. And we talked, we've been talking about the disconnect between how media have sort of pulled people into these opposing sides and through these, you know, si sort of dialectical oppositions of things that the media loves to toy with. But I think there's a sense that maybe the world is passing half of the world, or, or you know, that, that the world is passing half of the people by, and they, and they can't catch up because of this sort of accelerated um, idea of what, you know, I'm here a laborer working 
on uh, whatever, laying bricks, working, working with steel, you know, building a house or, or that sort of thing, that that kind of uh, type of work is passing people by. You're going to get so many philosophers talking about this idea of what it is we're going to make. You know, this goes back to, um, you know, so much of, again, the ancient Greeks were dealing with this question of, of what it is that you're making, you know, from an artistic sense, it's poesis, you know, it's, it's um, storytelling, it's, it, there's so much of it. But I think this question of what it is that we're going to make is fundamental. And that's where people, I think, are finding value. Um, the other thing that comes to mind is um, just in terms of what you're talking about, you know, reading Rousseau and then finding it very resonant today. I've been going and um, someone that I've sort of one of my summer projects is doing a lot of reading about Nietzsche and readings of Nietzsche. And um, I've been reading Dawn or Daybreak as it's sometimes translated. He's really getting, he does something probably not coincidentally picking up from Rousseau probably. Um, this idea of, of, you know, that money is going to sort of take over. Remember Nietzsche's big question, right? God is dead and we've killed him. But the more important aspect of that question is not something against the concept of, of Christianity or Christian faith, even though there, that's an element to it. His question is, what do we do now? Which is my question as well, and we've been sort of resonating this idea. And so this is, you know, Nietzsche's ongoing project is the reevaluation of values. And so what is the value going to be? So what you're talking about with Rousseau and having it be so resonant, and then having it picked up by Nietzsche, and then having it picked up by Byung-Chul Han, you know, what is it that we're doing? What is it that we're making? And this becomes kind of the fundamental question of what we're dealing with. I suppose in, in, in any time um, in, in sort of the post-Enlightenment world, is there's now an amp amplification of the subject, right? You're a subject, go out there and do what you're going to do. And that's, an, you know, Kierkegaard highlighted just the extraordinary pressure that that places on a person. Nietzsche's talking about the same thing. All these guys are talking about this problem that you're addressing right now. So you're right. It's not just labor. It's, it's about what it is that we are doing with our time, how we're spending our time. For Han, the answer is we need to sort of, you know, he talks about the scent of time. We need to go back and we need to sort of find ourselves in time rather than having it pass us by. Because when we think about technological societies, and we're such a technological society right now, the thing that Han's talking about in his most recent book, The Disappearance of Rituals, which I've just finished, is the problem of digital existence. And we have to stop thinking of digital as ancillary to our lives. It is the way we're living now. So what's happening now that we are actually living this existence? It's that everything is thrown into a constant arrow rather than any kind of cycling or sort of feeding back. We're just kind of sampling things that, that just shoot off into the atmosphere and it's gone. And so this is why Han brings back this idea of lingering or this idea of sort of, um, you know, it, one of my criticisms of Han is that it's, a, it's a, sort of a return to being that echoes Heidegger. Um, but there is something to be said for the idea of kind of lingering in time and, and asking the question of what it is we're doing with our time and what it is we're making. Now, to get back to the political, how does this become a movement? And this is the thing that I've always been having um, in the back of my head is, is if we can get out of this yelling at each other, you know, if we can get out of this uh, 
discounting the, the imagined other, then what is it that we share that we can sort of grab onto and linger on and sort of pull forward as an ethics? That's, what, that's one of the things that I'm really interested in looking at. One thing that just popped in my mind uh, as you're talking about this is, because uh, it's just been something that's really near and present, and I think it is a way where these kinds of bigger questions about how do we make sense of the present? And I like your comment about getting past the notion that the digital is kind of ancillary and like this kind of tack on component of our lives is, you know, I have uh, an 18 month old son and I'm confronting like basically how significantly different the first 15 to 20 years of his life is going to be compared to mine. I mean, uh, you know, once I got to my mid to late twenties, um, we really started, you know, and, and actually not until 2007 2008 when we really jumped the track into like social media you know hyper social media world uh so you know i i got a good 20 to almost 30 years of kind of somewhat detached non-digitized life uh whereas my son is not and it's just well one you know to give a clear example you know me and my wife um decided and i don't know i mean this is it's not my rage against the machine. It's maybe my whimper against the machine. <laughs> um, but we're not going to, you know, um, in Facebook, like public or any sort of public forums, um, going to show pictures of his face uh, for now of his childhood. And and that's something that I wouldn't have even thought about two or three years ago is that because I realized that's the beginning of his kind of digital existence. And on your point that that is not ancillary that is my son's and and we are guardians of that um not to get platonic we are the guardians of it but we are we are the custodians of that image the cultivators of that image and and i'm this is stuff i would not have thought twice about and and it's not to shame anyone who does put their kids pictures it's not about like oh if you do do that there's something bad it's it's more just like wow i i I wouldn't have not thought about this at all two or three years ago but now it's really become clear that again this is our imprint like that is being and and it's kind of given me this odd feeling of responsibility as a as as someone who is again control is, is has control over his initial kind of foray into a digital existence well, this is so. I imagine that this is the question of most uh, or many parents um, of young children right now, and God bless them for <laughs> doing it. <laughs> it's a, it um, is for a you joy. and others it for is, doing yeah, it um, overall. <laughs> I, I know. Well, that's a whole <laughs> other conversation. But I mean, I, I think <laughs> I think there is, you know, this. I I I would imagine that parents are thinking, how much do I let go? Like, um, because you know, it's not let the kid go out and ride the bike um, around the neighborhood and hope he comes back in an hour. Um, because if you, if you try to control their upbringing in a, in a digital reality, then, then there's the feeling that they're going to slip behind. And then if you do introduce them to these devices and these technologies, um, you, you run the risk of stripping away their soul, in my opinion. <laughs> Um, so, <laughs> I'm told you I'm already stressed about this. <laughs> I just got an image of me like ripping my son's soul away. Jesus. This, but this is seriously it. This is the no, thing, right? Man, is, am heavy, I wrong? Man. Tell me I'm wrong. Oh, man. Yeah. I mean, it is, it is such a massive, and, you know, I, I think this is something that it, it really is cliche, but it's 
some cliches are cliches and because people oh, yeah. say them all the time because they're true like it it just is so massively transformative in terms of just your interaction and, and kind of engagement with the world when you just got this you know spunky little dude just running around um, you know this morning he was dancing to steely dan and i was just like man this is just amazing but also it's just humbling and and I'm just, I'm, I'm the father here. I mean, from, from my wife, um, you know, it, it literally was transformative in terms of her body and her physical being. Um, so it's just even you know, on a deeper level, it's on one level, the most pedestrian thing ever. Like you have a kid, you know, there's millions of kids born, yada, yada. But, but on another level, it is this like massively profound thing and just mind blowing kind of revelatory experience so it, it, it and they're both true i mean both and not either or so i mean and speaking of kind of this and in one thing where maybe we can uh, tie this up together with just briefly and i want to hear your thoughts on it because i think in terms of these questions you know thinking about nietzsche or rousseau and one thing i always like about nietzsche um, we talked about him last episode as well is He's not, you know, he didn't brandish himself as a social science per se, but I think Nietzsche had one of the best, like, kind of social science predictions of all time. He says, you know, and you, you cited that quote, which I, I always, you know, start one of my classes where it's germane with just putting up God is dead. And then I, I put the rest of the quotation, as you mentioned, right? When it's, it's, it is also a kind of, there's a certain forlornness to it. Like, well, what in the hell are we going to do now? Yeah. That's the question. It's an existential question. And in, yeah. in, in other parts of his work, Nietzsche answers that. And he says, it's, it's just nationalism. We're going, to, we're going to have to fill it with this kind of virulent nationalism as a kind of civic religion. And, you know, that's, that's, that's a very sh- giving, you know, the, it's a more complex argument, but to kind of give the very short version here. And <laughs> I mean, let's. Yeah, I don't, I, don't, I don't think I agree with you there, though. Okay. I, I don't think it is. Yeah, I don't think he is advocating a nationalism. I don't think I, he's. I think he's I don't think he's advocating it. I think he's saying that's what's going to replace this. Like, it's going to be filled. I see what you're saying. What's that? Okay. Yeah, I misunderstood yeah, you. No, he's not uh, advocating this. I, don't, I, I think he's saying, like, again, like, I think he, he saw nationalism as kind of as problematic as he did religion, which he obviously wasn't a, a fan of, particularly Christianity. But I think he was saying this, for most people, there's going to have to be filled by something. And he saw nationalism as the kind of vehicle to kind of take... A, to that religion for Nietzsche, though he saw it as having a, a limiting effect on human potentiality, he also recognized from his perspective that it had a function or a role it played in social organization. And he's saying if we take that away, I think he saw nationalism as, you know, for most people, that's going to be something that's going to kind of fill that void. Mm, I think there's a, yeah. I think there's. I think he's doing his whole project in, as a question of filling that void. Right. So, I think that's one aspect. But I think there's also the aspect of art. You know, there's there's much more positive aspects there as well. There's the aspects of um, what are we giving our thought to, and and what are we creating, and what kind of art are we making, and um, and and that kind of stuff as well. All right. Well, this came up in in our discussion with George, and I think it does fit in good with. You know, since we trotted out, I trotted out Rousseau. Um, I think it fits in well because for Nietzsche, he had a pretty clear view that most individuals are not capable or willing to. The fill you're talking about is becoming this person of excellence and carving your own 
path out of the world. And for Nietzsche, he saw most people as basically incapable of that. And from him, from his view, and that and that's where I wanted to. I think him and Rousseau present two different ideas about, and that's the word I wanted to kind of home in on for the last bit here is equality. And I think for Nietzsche, my understanding at least is that religion and Christianity in particular was a mechanism by where the weak, right, um, captured and and in some ways put the 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 strong um and and he's not even saying strong in like a, a praiseworthy way but people who had power within society that religion was a way to delimit them to control them to give them you know he called it a, a slave morality and i think that's interesting because rousseau had the kind of opposite whereas rousseau says that basically liberalism as he understood it was a process through which people with wealth and power kind of sell a kind of phony or ultimately highly circumscribed, you know, notion of equality. Like, oh yeah, like, hey, hey, we'll all be equal under the law and this is great for you. You should do this. But so, you know, Rousseau saw a much different process where liberalism was the mechanism through which the powerful ensnared the weak. So for Nietzsche, like Christianity was the process where the weak ensnared the strong. But for Rousseau, liberalism uh, was a mechanism through which the strong um, ensnared mm. the weak. Mm-hmm. So I think they're very interesting. And I don't think they're necessarily, it's like a confrontation where one is right or wrong, but I think it's just two fundamentally different ways of thinking about society and notion of equality within society. society. That sounds like a good paper. <laughs> it does. <laughs> um, so, and that's what I wanted to kind of move to is this idea of equality, because I think that also lies in the center of this. And I think these are questions that are just highly relevant to what we're seeing now because this goes back to this issue of labor and the division of labor is people are demanding equal standing and you know one thing i really always try to get my students to kind of imbibe or, or reflect upon is just how radical um, equality is a true belief in equality is extremely radical and it, and it puts us in very difficult ethical dilemmas vis-a-vis the current state of not only the united states but the world because it's hard, it's very hard to square any conception of equality with the distribution of resources and conditions that we inhabit. I mean, I'm obviously in the very high end globally of these conditions, right? And, and it's hard to square that with any sort of genuine notion of equality. And that's where Rousseau comes in because he sees this kind of Civic equality and equality before the law is, is is somehow ultimately kind of not even a half loaf, not even a quarter loaf, maybe like maybe like a sixteenth loaf. So yeah, I don't know. What do you think? I mean, I think equality is is it's still something where, but this is very new, right? For most of human history, because it's like yeah, people just aren't equal, and that could be by birth or whatever. And like you know, in some ways, Nietzsche kind of cares. Like people just aren't equal. But mm-hmm. the, the 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 notion of equality is a very radical concept that we're still trying to work out what that entails and, and what obligations that places upon us. Mm-hmm. So, I, I don't know. What do you think? I don't know. It's a really difficult question. It's, it's a question that, um, you know, I think that touches so much and, and it, I think you're, you're right to uh, sort of identify it as a, as, as a topic of our time. Um, but then, you know, I think a lot of 
philosophers get nervous with this question because then it it moves into the area of utilitarianism and and into the area of social engineering um and what i mean is is asking the question of who who's going to decide what that is and um how what are the mechanisms in place that are driving this you know one of the other aspects of um nietzsche's the concept of power of course um the thing is are you thinking of of power in the sense of agents or are you thinking of it in terms of a more metaphysical sense of the sort of underlying conditions because if you're looking at it in terms of and this is why I think Deleuze is, is such an important writer for our time, and why I think Nietzsche is important as well. The, the whole concept of will to power is not that somebody is doing it, it's that it's assembling. It's that things are kind of gathering forces. And so if you're going to say, okay, if so, with the question of equality, you have to ask, what are, what are going to be the conditions of equality? And I think this word conditions is an important word. What, what is the the underlying situation and the history in which we're going to mobilize a greater sense of equality, and and what what are the what are the re- resonances of that, right? Right. Well, and I think so. It's it's a really difficult question. No, because I mean, obviously, we we've seen this as I mentioned go well awry in kind of however earnest, absolutely, you know, in in terms of yeah. these massive the best intentions, right? yeah, in terms of these kind of forced equality, right? And and I mean, they, mm-hmm. I think it's 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 kind of panned a bit, like Rousseau's line about forcing people to be free. But there is something to be said that it does pose a kind of problematic in terms of, I like your idea of conditions, like what are the conditions of equality? And so with the time we have here, I think the best I could come up with or, or kind of the best way I could think about it is to kind of return back to the discussion a bit earlier when I mentioned the notion of respect that, and, and a kind of decoupling. How can we accept that? different people will perform different functions in terms of society or do different things, right? That, that there is a kind of spectrum and that need not be so entwined with the respect one is afforded. And in, in some ways, that's what we're taught. You should treat everyone the same, but in, in practice, de facto, in, in the U.S. and societies around the world, and this is especially a big issue in Korea, I don't know how many, maybe we're, I'm dating myself, is nut rage already too old? But remember that nut rage, the woman who just dressed down the flight attendant, the Korean uh, woman who was an heiress to one of the large, to Korean air. She was, uh, I guess, the daughter of the founder. Those moments are not, it's beyond that, that one moment, but what it manifests. And I worked at, in, in waiting tables. I've, I've been privy to this. There's a certain kind of dressing down of people and, and dismissal of them and a lack of respect that is kind of, ingrained in into the way the system is organized and i don't know but to me that is kind of the the question is is can we accept that people will do different things and perform different functions without attaching a kind of de facto kind of respect and and also a a an, in actuality like people's treatment by the legal system and by the police or, or, or other social institutions, I'm not sure. I mean, again, Marx's kind of solution to that was that people would just not have to do manual labor by and large, or you know, machines would basically do a lot of that, leaving us kind of more free to pursue kind of 
pursuits or, or more humane kind of uses of our time. I'm not seeing that on the horizon. I mean, some people do talk about the end of work. Um, so that, you know, that, 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 that a lot of... It's becoming a conversation. Right. There has been over the last few years. But it, it just seems to me, though, that is, that's the kind of rub it. And, and I think, again, I want to go back to that kind of, you know, we're seeing the permutations of that. In Korea, there's a movement called Hell Joseon, right? Which is like younger people saying... That Korea is like the caste system of the Joseon dynasty, and it's yeah, I've heard about, about, about this. It's time yeah. to escape, and there's obviously a lot of, shall we say, uh, interesting kind of sex within Korean society, looking for salvation. And you know, obviously, one of them was at the center of one of the big uh, COVID nineteen outbreaks in the in the early part of the yep. pandemic. And we're mm-hmm. seeing that in the United States with all kinds of permutations, and it, it's a delicate discussion because I think, like you mentioned, you can instantly be accused of like equivocation, like, oh, are you saying that? protests, people, left-wing protests or, or other kinds of critical protests are the same as Trump and, or, or MAGA protests or Proud Boys. No. I mean, I want to say here, unequivocally, no, I don't see them as the same. And I do see much more righteousness in terms of the cause on the side of, of these protests. And, and I see repugnance and, and vileness on the side of Proud Boys and all they represent. That said, I can see similar roots in alienation. And so I, I always say like understanding something and legitimating it are very different. And, and when I, and, and that's where it's always a difficult conversation. When I, I, to my understanding, this lack of feeling of respect and sense of acknowledgement. And if people don't have that, and I think that is, there is a lot of relativity in terms of cultural expectations, but I think that is a, a universal. Human beings want to be treated with respect, want to be seen as an equal. And that's, if you notice, um, that is something people have a very, this isn't scientific way to put it, but very sixth sense about. They know when they're being condescended to, no matter what someone is doing. Yeah, and they just absolutely. sense it. And I think that's hardwired into us as human beings to repel and revolt against not being respected. And I think there is some positive permutations coming out of that. People standing up against corporate you know, wealth and, and greed and, and racial violence and racial oppression. Um, but there's also some ugly permutations of that. But at the foundation of that is this kind of sense of lack of respect that binds these things together. And I want to reiterate that that is not an equivocation of them and of the, what they stand for. I, I don't believe that um, at all. But I, I think that's kind of my take. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. Respect's another hard one. It's it's a difficult one. Just like equality is a different one as well. Um, respect is. I don't think you can ever expect someone to respect another person. Hmm. I just don't think you can do that. Right. Um, so it's just one of the terms that I keep thinking about, and it's it's uh, one of these ideas that sort of flourished with Heidegger um, and Kierkegaard. The idea of authenticity, which is getting a lot of critique these days um, because there's problems with that, you know, the idea of authenticity being sort of to be true to oneself, you know, it's, it's part of the, the existentialist movements, but it's, it's the idea of kind of acting in your life as if, you know, that in a way that is true to yourself, that hopefully reflects um, others and sort of spreads outward. Just this idea of being true, the reason why I think it's getting a lot of a lot of flack is because it, it, it makes things sort of self-centered and subjective. But I, you know, that, that's, 
thing that I try to do. I at least try to be authentic in what it is that I'm doing. Right. And I think that's a great place to leave it. Uh, pondering what is our authentic self and living our authentic lives. Uh, I think that's, you know, a, as good a place as any to wrap up what has just been a really excellent conversation. And Jim, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Kevin. Yeah, it was a blast. I really enjoyed it. Right on. And thanks to all of our listeners, especially those stalwarts who have made it here to the bitter end of this episode. Uh, I really hope you enjoy the show. As always, I would ask you to subscribe, rate, review on whatever podcast platform you listen to. Um, do it old school. Tell your friends that this is a cool show and that they should listen to it. I hope everyone has a wonderful holiday season or as good as possible, given the conditions we're experiencing right now. Stay safe. Stay warm and have a great time. We'll look forward to seeing you in a few weeks. And on that thought of living lives, living our authentic lives. Fuck. Okay, there we go. Three, two, one.